Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com Last time I talked to John Tory was December 11th, 2017, at the annual holiday party held by the Toronto City Hall Press Gallery. At that point, I'd been at Canada Land for not quite a year, having left the municipal beat to cover the glamorous world of Canadian media instead. Tory asked if I was enjoying it, and I responded with something to the effect of, I don't think anyone in media is enjoying themselves these days. Well, except for the folks at BuzzFeed. And even more than the blank look on the mayor's face, I recall what it was like to look in from the outside on BuzzFeed at the time. It was the one place in the news industry where people seemed genuinely happy and deeply proud of themselves, their work, their colleagues, and their brand. Think of like Vice at its peak, but more wholesome and better paying. BuzzFeed's Canadian unit, based in Toronto, on the next block over from Canada Land, was no exception. I mean, they once did a live stream from the office of something they called a capybara pool party. Okay. Hi, everyone. We have, this is Willow Capybara, who's in our office today. Uh, so we have a nice little pool for her. We have a beach ball. Ah, we got some snacks. Uh, this is the best day of our lives. BuzzFeed is still around. BuzzFeed Canada is even still technically around with lists, quizzes, generic lifestyle content, sponsored posts from the Ottawa Tourism Authority, etc. But at the start of May, BuzzFeed News closed for good, publishing as its final article in ultimate oral history of itself. When I first clicked through to that piece, I was really happy to see the collage at the top included pics of a number of the Canadians who made a name for themselves there, like Craig Silverman, Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud, and Sachi Cole. But the piece itself, despite running nearly 12,000 words, offered just passing mentions of Canada. Because, you know, like, I figured that if the bright, brief life of BuzzFeed News was a microcosm of the whole past, present, and future of media collapsed into the span of, like, a single supercharged decade— 
then their Canadian offshoot was a microcosm of that, blazing through a similar rise and fall in just a fraction of the time. Perhaps it wasn't surprising that a news outlet that was strapped onto a business model premised on catching trends and riding waves would itself crest and crash in quick succession. But still, I, I wanted to know, how did something so seemingly wonderful get built up so fast? And what was it like for those on the inside watching it slip away? So I found two people who were there at the beginning and almost at the end. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Jeffrey Nordstrom, Alex Cordellis, Nancy Bell, Sean Hines, Sue Mora, Matthew Refuse, Kat Cantor, and Nicole. My name is Nicole. I live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. While talking with a friend from Calgary, I realized how stereotypically unaware we as U.S. citizens are of anything that happens outside of our country. I've been attempting to broaden my sources and knowledge. Canada Land provides an interesting, entertaining, and informative way to do just that. I love learning about what's happening with Northern Neighbor and appreciate what Jesse and his team provide. And that is why I support Canada Land. So I guess, could you each start by introducing yourself? Hello, my name is Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. I am the number one Craig Silverman fan. That's my main job. I am Craig Silverman, and my job is pleasing Alameen Abdul-Mahmoud. <laughs> and when I don't do that, yeah. I work as a reporter at ProPublica, and I'm the former founding editor of BuzzFeed Canada. Oh, I should have said that part, hey? Um, I used to work at BuzzFeed Canada, first as a social media editor, and then a news curation editor, and then lastly as a culture writer. So I moved through a few different roles of BuzzFeed News. Now I host a show on CBC. So, Craig, you started in the spring of 2015 as BuzzFeed Canada's founding editor. Tell me, how was it founded? First of all, BuzzFeed Canada was different from any other international edition that BuzzFeed had ever done. They were already in Brazil. They were in the UK. They were in Australia. All of those places started with what internally we refer to as buzz, which is lists and quizzes, nothing to do with news, just like viral content people can relate to and want to share. Every other international place started with that. In Canada, because BuzzFeed was already, I think, a top 10 news media site in Canada. According without, to, without having a presence here. Without having any editorial people here. We had yeah. salespeople here already. Uh, the idea was, well, maybe we should launch with news in Canada as well as hiring some dedicated Canada Buzz people. And so we were really unique in that respect. Everything about BuzzFeed Canada was different from other internationals because there was already revenue, never had happened in either place. We were already a top 10 site. We were going to start with news. And so all of that made it a, a very different kind of experiment. And so we were going to hire some dedicated buzz people, um, you know, one really to start. And then we were going to hire some news people. And because Ben Smith was a news guy mm -hmm. and because we had a federal election coming in Canada in the fall of 2015, mm -hmm. Ben was of the view, let's hire some political reporters. Let's get some scoops. Let's get some scoops. And also because one of the reasons Ben even took the job at BuzzFeed is because he was told that, look, every U.S. presidential election cycle can birth a new news organization. And you guys, he was told back then, you have a chance to break BuzzFeed and social, you know, political reporting in that. And so Ben took that lesson and said, you know, we have a chance to break BuzzFeed Canada in the course of this federal election. So when I was initially saying, I don't know if we should hire politics right away, why don't we start slow and see and go from there? They were like, no, 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 we, we got to have people in Ottawa. We got to be there for the election. And so we had a mix of news. We had a mix of buzz. And we were sort of kicking off with that, uh, unlike any other place BuzzFeed had done. For each of you, what was the 
first occasion you can recall hearing about BuzzFeed? I think really the first time I cared about it and noticed it was probably when they hired Ben Smith as editor-in-chief. So I probably wasn't paying attention to BuzzFeed when it was the sort of content lab being run by Jonah Peretti. But when they hired Ben Smith, who had been a political blogger at Politico, because I had come from the sort of old school blogging world, I was like, oh, what is Ben Smith doing at this place that does weird lists and quizzes and internet ephemera? Um, they're going to try to do news mm. sort of thing, which was a lot of people's reaction at the time. What about for you? But the same probably? Or? Probably same era. I don't know if it was the same necessarily, same instigator, but like my job before BuzzFeed was I worked mm. as a social media producer at TVO. And just in terms of looking in that universe of like, okay, there's this whole new world of social media of every newsroom is hiring a bunch of people who will try to make their news work on social media. And that's a different skill set than making it work on your website, whatever that might be. And BuzzFeed was kind of the best in class at the time. And he was, it was this like very specific moment of, hey, the news is migrating to social media. Soon time, we're not going to even be going to websites. We're going to be getting all of our news entirely directly on the feed. And BuzzFeed was the place I was sort of doing the most experimentation with that. And so Mm -hmm. to me, like that's how they came across my radar the first time. Yeah, I mean, BuzzFeed started as, like, as Ben Smith describes in his new book, as like a, a skunkworks for HuffPost, kind of. Like, oh, Jonah Peretti did this as, like, a side project to figure out what what is trending. But originally, what was trending on Google, and then later, what was trending on Facebook. And after they finally sort of got that figured out in 2011, they, he started, he hired Ben Smith at the end of the year, end of 2011, started yeah. what was then BuzzFeed Politics and became BuzzFeed News. Realistically, most people heard about BuzzFeed through the immortal words, what colors are this dress? Yeah, what, was it black and blue or white and gold? Like the, the internet was tearing itself apart trying to reach a conclusion. Like that was like kind of the moment where, okay, this company is doing things beyond its very specific sort of internet corner scope. It just mm-hmm. kind of felt like it graduated to a new level of, okay, now everybody kind of knows about this. Okay. No, I guess I guess so, yeah. That was early 2015, January, February 2015, I believe. And I, re- I remember I was in New York on the day of, it, not just the dress day, but that was also the day, I believe, it was llamas were somewhere loose That's in the right. United States. That's and right. it's been memorialized as like, you know, the best day on the internet or whatever. And I was in New York and was running like a research project around virality and veracity at the time and was like walking around. I I, like visited some journalism profs at CUNY and other places. And I remember just talking to one journalism prof at CUNY who was – we were looking at the llama stuff being like, oh, my God, this is so hilarious. This is such great content. And it was BuzzFeed was at the center of all that. And I do remember also meeting with, I think, Jay Rosen from NYU, another sort of like future of journalism Mm -hmm. blogging guru. And we talked about how BuzzFeed seemed to have a bundle. And what we meant by that was newspapers were amazing businesses Mm -hmm. because they had a bundle where it was like, yeah, there was news, but also you had classified ads and you had listings. And then there was, you know, all of these sort of cultural reporting. There were crosswords. There were comics. That was a bundle that came in one package that lots of different people Mm -hmm. liked for different reasons and were all willing to pay for. And the internet splintered the bundle in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. You know, Craigslist became a classified place and took that business away. But BuzzFeed, it seemed like they were building a bundle where they had these lists and these quizzes and those things people wanted. Then they were bundling in news. And then they had, you know, a business model around creating sort of viral content for brands. And it's sort of that conversation that day was it looks like BuzzFeed may actually have 
a viable business model for media. And whoops. (laughs) (laughs) Were we wrong? (laughs) Turns out you shouldn't base the entirety of the future of media on some llamas and address. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, My bad. Uh, (laughs) I mean, one thing that... I've been thinking about is how it's almost like the entire history of most news organizations or most media organizations all compressed into the span of about a decade, right? right? Mm. Instead of having growing up over decades and then withering away over decades, this all happened over the span of pretty much over 10 years and BuzzFeed Canada over maybe like the middle portion of that, which is even more compressed. I should also be careful, I guess, about like doing a full eulogy here. Like BuzzFeed Canada as an entity still exists. Do they do news? Absolutely not. But yeah, they, they're producing the okay. classic BuzzFeed content. Yeah. And so the thing that was the flash in the pan was the BuzzFeed Canada as a news entity. That is willing to report on things that are happening here. Yes. Whether it's, you know, you had Paul and Emma in Ottawa or Craig doing the tribute to Conrad, the raccoon who died. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. Highlight of my life, obviously. <laughs> I'll never, never reach that apex again. What was that, four million people? Yeah, I well, actually. Three million people? Well, I, yeah, I remember that for a second. The, yeah, I I the day when that story came out, I remember at one point, Jonathan. Do you want to tell people here. what the story was? Yeah, tell, tell, no, tell the story. No, everyone knows what the story is. Okay, <laughs> excuse me. So there was this raccoon who died, <laughs> got run over by a car. This is the thing is, if you describe it, it's it's absolutely nothing. Uh, so it was one evening when I was at Arabus Vicanda, I would look for sort of stories after my kids went to bed that maybe we could start reporting on and finish the next day or that I could quickly do that night. Um, And so I just noticed on Twitter that people were talking about this dead raccoon on the street in Toronto. And then somebody had called the city to pick it up, but it had taken hours and hours and hours. And at a certain point, people started putting flowers out there and, you know, memorializing. makeshift memorial. This dead raccoon. And then at one point, as we found out later, some office workers from a nearby building printed off a photo of a raccoon, put it in a frame, (laughs) brought that down, brought some candles, made a whole nice thing of it. And so I just did what was, you know, a quick sort of easy post that we would do at the time was I, t- you know, just mm. rounded up the uh, the memorial to a dead raccoon. Yeah. And people in uh, Toronto created a memorial to a dead raccoon after the city forgot to pick it up. RIP hashtag dead raccoon to That was it. His name was Conrad, right? That's uh, exactly I believe they, they named him. Yeah. And so I think I noticed it because the hashtag was starting to trend dead raccoon to And it was also a beautiful story because, you know, you had the early photos of it and then it starts to grow and it starts to have this sort of viral moment where people are adding more. And so, like, somebody buys a rose and puts it next to them. There's the the photo. Then at one point they print off, like, a a condolences card and left a Sharpie so people could sign. (laughs) And so – and then, of course, and I posted it and it was doing well and I went to bed (laughs) – it was doing really well, and I woke up, and all shit had fucking— The entire internet was talking about it this It was dead crazy. Yeah. They were like—because we had a newsroom in Toronto, and our global news director, Lisa Tazi, or we had a, a newsroom in London, I should say, and our global news director from New York was in London that day. And when I woke up, somebody had already printed off a, a photo for her of a raccoon and framed it and put it on her desk in London. <laughs> and so I woke up to that, and at that point, it, it's like over a million views or whatever. I, I a day. It's a perfect example of the kind of story that like global would never do that. You know what I mean? Like they would just not touch 
the st- even if it was gaining traction as like right. here's like a little memorial mm-hmm. to this raccoon that died. The threshold is different. Whereas like you were like, why not? This is why obvious for I, us. Why, why yeah, wouldn't I mean, we do it? And this was so. This was like the second month of BuzzFeed Canada, and this was like a few, just a few months after you were hired, and just before yeah. you were hired, Elmin. Yeah. So could you, just going back a few months, how were you first brought into BuzzFeed, Craig, and how did they decide to set up? Well, what were you told about them? How yeah. did you get the Canada? final rose? Ah, uh, uh, yes. It was. I'm getting kissed on the lips by Ben Smith at the moment. <laughs> I will never forget. <laughs> so my connection with BuzzFeed starts. Uh, years before 2015, I was somebody who was blogging about uh, journalistic accuracy, corrections, ethics, boring stuff for the Pointer Institute, which is a journalism kind of training nonprofit. And uh, I was seen as the most knowledgeable person about this obscure area of corrections. Well, how do you correct your errors in journalism? And so BuzzFeed had gone through a bit of a, a journalistic uh, scandal or issue. Uh, and so at one point, Ben and Shawnee, who I think was executive editor or managing editor, had sort of talk to me about if we are going to do corrections, how do we do them or that kind of thing. And so I had given them some advice and then ended up finding out that they had integrated some corrections things into the actual like content management system that you type your articles in. And I was like, oh, that's cool. So I'd written a post. And that's how I'd sort of met okay. Ben and Shani. Um, and Ben and I didn't had never met before, but I started blogging in 2004. He started blogging for Political early on. There was a small world. So we sort of knew of each other a little bit. And then we get to about 2014. And I was running a research project looking at the virality of rumors and falsehoods. It was called Emergent.info. It was a website. And I was doing a research fellowship at the Tau Center at Columbia, living in Montreal, and was researching how rumors, whether they turn out to be true or false, spread and how news organizations cover them. My concern was that they were kind of buying the rumor, like writing up the rumor really quickly to get that traffic. And then whether it turned out to be true or false, they just like, "Ah, I don't care. I got the traffic. Um, So really looking at viral news and some of the negative incentives of that. And and one of the things I started doing was I I started to do a weekly quiz of like the false stuff that we saw because we were tracking falsehoods. And people at BuzzFeed, I noticed, were like retweeting these quizzes. And like Ben was mentioning it. And Lisa Tazi, the global news director, was mentioning it. I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. BuzzFeed folks are – because as far as I'm concerned, if I can help people understand about false information through a quiz format, that's a great appealing way to do it. And all that being said, I mean, at a certain point, you know, Ben reached out, said he thought the project I was running was cool. He said, if you're ever in New York, you know, come by. I'd love to talk to you. And so I was like, oh, I'm in New York next week. I wasn't booked to be in New York next week. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so I booked a flight and went to New York and met with Ben and Lisa and these other people. And we started talking about me doing this kind of debunking of viral stuff for BuzzFeed, which would have involved me probably moving to New York. And this is early 2015. And as we're talking about that and it's starting to get serious and I'm starting to like the idea because it's like, well, if you're going to debunk viral garbage, being inside BuzzFeed to see viral stuff early on is a good idea. But at a certain point, Ben said, oh, by the way, we're probably launching in Canada and we'll need an editor. Do you like, do you want to throw your hat in for that? And that really appealed to me because the idea was like, wait, I could build an, a news organization in Canada and hire people and be part of this crazy engine of BuzzFeed. Because, it, you know, it's early 2015 and, and BuzzFeed is one of the hottest things in yeah. media at the time. No question. Absolutely. Um, so that's sort of where it started. And I ended up applying and getting the job. And how were you brought, brought in, Elvin? Uh, listen, I'd love to tell you the story, but before we do, I think Craig was being overly humble about his description of working on rumors and viral news because— This isn't going to make the podcast. This is going to make the podcast. <laughs> and the reason it does is, like, there's, what, three people 
who yeah, started the, the phrase fake news. You know, you're like you're the Steve Wozniak of fake news. Oh, dude. thank you. I mean, you don't you want to be Steve Jobs? You can be Steve Jobs I, I if mean, you want to be. If I have to pick, sure. Um, I, oh, I was going to get. get to, I mean, I have less of the prick factor, I think, than <laughs> Steve Jobs, maybe. But I just mean that we're not a lot of people doing oh, yeah. this work. No, and so like kudos to not just you for doing it mm-hmm. before everybody else was like, this is going to become the problem of modern mm-hmm. news, but also for to Ben for recognizing like, oh, this is going to be an issue. Ben, investing in that. Right? I, you know, I definitely think it's, it is amazing that Ben and Lisa and senior people at BuzzFeed kind of looked at what I was doing because yeah. to your point, I was just a niche weirdo running yeah. a small website based on a research project. There were very few people interested in virality and falsehoods. Does it weird you out now that, that like it's you've, well, you've birthed a complex. The one one thing I will say about that is, you know, Ben recognized there was something interesting about it in late 2014, early 2015, mm-hmm. when no when nobody else really cared about it. And then a year or so later, in the spring of 2016, when I had been running BuzzFeed Canada, been very focused on Canada, Ben came back to me and said, you should really go back on your debunking beat. Mm-hmm. And so this was before yeah. really the crazy, true Trump craziness. Trump barely announced yeah. at that point, right? I mean, he yeah, yeah he, he was in. He June was 2015, in. I think. Exactly. He'd been in since 2015. Oh, but, okay, okay. you know, it was picking up and uh, falsehoods were not the main issue. Like everybody knew he was lying, but it wasn't a broader issue. And sure. so I'll give Ben credit. Is like mm-hmm. He looks like a pretty smart guy in retrospect of, you know, sort of pulling me away from Canada and saying, listen, man, you, you need to go back to what you were doing before because yeah. it's really important. What was it the first time you walked into the office? Sure. Well, okay. So let me tell you, I was was at their party. I genuinely don't know how I ended up at your party. This launch party that BuzzFeed News had where all of the people that we mentioned so far were at that party and I knew none of them. I was there mostly for the drinks. He was being scouted is what I can tell you now. Mm. I go to this party. I meet some of these people. And then in the party, there's like these whispers of like, oh, BuzzFeed's going to be hiring. They're going to be hiring a few roles. One of them is another Buzz person. And then the other thing that they're going to be hiring is a social media editor. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm interested in that because that is what I do now, except I feel a little bit constrained using the TVO voice. TVO voice and my voice don't really mesh. I don't really sound a lot like the agenda, you know? And so I apply and I got an interview right away and I bombed. Um, And the reason I bombed (laughs) is because I came into this interview and uh, among the list of many ideas that I had was, hey, you know what we should do is maybe we should have a Facebook page and also a Twitter page. And they were like, cool, man. But they already had one. And I just (laughs) simply had just not found it. Imagine, (laughs) imagine you're interviewing for the social media editor job at BuzzFeed (laughs) and you somehow don't see that they they, they first of all, one. you come to the belief that they don't have a Facebook page. How does that even happen? You go, I should go look at their social media presence, don't find it, and then go, my brilliant idea is yeah. we, should, we should have one you of You guys should be on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, so, you I know, we brought it, it was brought up politely in the interview. He looked mortified, obviously. Was, but, uh, but you know, the, the whole thing with... BuzzFeed and social news is like the voice part is really important because yeah. the voice that BuzzFeed used, particularly on Twitter, uh, was was unlike any other sort of brand, let alone news account that ever existed out there in a lot of ways. And it and it caused a lot of 
you know, others to mimic it to to great and disappointment and, yeah, yeah. you know, and still yeah. and still try. And so which is say, like, you got to sound like a person. You got to sound sarcastic. You got to sound yeah. a little bit like what the platform already kind of sounds not like. Not just this faceless goo of a of a you yeah. know, corporate brand or whatever. And yeah. so, you know, we we believe that I only sort of had the voice. And when he talked about social and the dynamics of social, he understood what was going on. He'd had a piece that you'd written that went viral and you spent a lot of time thinking about why it went viral. Yeah. And so all those things, you know, seemed like a fit. And so we were able to overlook <laughs> that he seemed to be really bad at finding Facebook pages. <laughs> so obviously this was the 2015 was the very much the era of peak BuzzFeed when you started there. Oh, I mean, yeah. in, and in between, mm-hmm. right in between the first thing, the announcement that BuzzFeed would be expanding into Canada when that became public and the announcement that you'd be the editor. Um, there was kind of like an epical thing published on the All, which I'm, you probably may remember, which is which the, the All was like a you know a higher brow gawker founded by ex gawker people, and there was this advice column published under the headline, oh, "I hate myself because I don't work for BuzzFeed." <laughs> Uh, now it reads like it's gone. It must have been satirical, but it wasn't taken as satirical at the time. Oh, I, I don't, I don't know. think it was satirical at the time no. at Could all. Could you read this excerpt from it? Sure. <laughs> BuzzFeed is the most successful media company of our time. BuzzFeed is the future of the media business. BuzzFeed is the most widely recognized media brand among young people and will inevitably eclipse the major media organizations and one day become a super hegemonic media power, the likes of which we've never seen. Their past being just a website slash media organization, they're a cultural institution. And BuzzFeed is in perpetual growth mode. They hardly ever fire anyone, save for an unlucky few, and are always making huge hires. Seems like every time I check an awesome person's Twitter bio, it's changed to staff writer at BuzzFeed or editor at BuzzFeed or whatever. Yeah, I mean, and the person continued, um, no, I mean, this business is so fucked. This, this person essentially, this is an advice call, and the person was really distraught because they weren't working for BuzzFeed. And they yeah. said, you know, this business is so fucked up, and I don't understand how anyone could say otherwise unless they work at BuzzFeed, where literally right. everything is perfect and the industry is in great shape because you get free shit, never get fired, traffic is always going up, and the money never ends. What was it like going into a place that had that reputation, and was that reputation justified to some extent? Uh, look, it, it looked like at that point BuzzFeed had a lot figured out. Obviously, this is very over the top, but, yeah. but it looked like it had it had a viable business model. It was growing internationally. It had something to go with news because news itself is typically not a great business. you got to bolt on some other things. And so, yeah, it felt tremendously exciting. It felt like those stock options I got might actually be worth something, uh, <laughs> you know, which is you're never supposed to think that. And that was wrong to think of now we know. So, yeah, it felt like the classic you know, it was a rocket ship. It was taking off. And I can tell you when I first got there and saw the traffic of what we would get in Canada. And at the time, what we were able to do was this thing where we could target a post that we had just published to all of the Canadians who had liked the main BuzzFeed page, the main BuzzFeed Facebook page. And I remember the first time I saw us do that, the analytics you could watch in real time just exploded in a way I'd never seen before. I had yeah. run websites before. I'd worked at places before. I'd never worked anywhere with that level of traffic. And I made some kind of sound that made the people in the office next to ours concerned for my health <laughs> when I saw it happen. Uh, and so it just seemed like, yeah, this just massive machine and everything was going well. And you were getting in on something that was going in the right direction. It felt good on all of those levels. And especially the thing I identify with that excerpt is, yeah, you look around and it just seemed like it was carnage in the media business. Yeah. And this was one of the places that you could go and and not only 
maybe be safe, but also you could have a level of freedom and do some fun and ambitious stuff that you probably mm-hmm. couldn't do anywhere else. So it seemed great. It's not just the freedom. It's also like there was kind of a built-in cultural capital in the yeah. sense of telling people you worked at BuzzFeed seems to buy you certain amount of goodwill at the time. Mm-hmm. Seemed to buy you, like just the ability to be like, I trust your judgment in some kind of mm-hmm. way because you are a part of this machine that has has something else figured out that we don't understand. And so other places would turn to you and be like, hey, will you speak to us about how we should do social media? Right. And because all we want is to figure out how to do this thing. Or will you speak to us on how, how we should do news? Because everyone was like, Will we all become what BuzzFeed is doing? I think I was a few months into the job and I got asked to come talk to a manager's retreat for Rogers Media. Wow. <laughs> so, yeah. yes, it felt like it was a bit of a magical time. And yeah. the, the weird thing for me is, is you know, that's 2015 when I joined. Yeah. And I had been really blogging about the media and reporting on the media at that point for more than a decade. And so I felt like I had seen a lot come and go and yeah. somewhat cynical, but also could see what was real. And there's no question, like, I got swept up in, in the BuzzFeed mm-hmm mania at the time as well. There's no question of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one thing that struck me from reading BuzzFeed News' culminating oral history of itself, published on the final day, was how it seemed like I didn't realize how, at least in the states, how bacchanalian it had been. Like it was like a, not quite, it wasn't like a more wholesome vice. Yeah. But it was still a lot of excess. Fucking oysters and lobster from the UK office. We didn't have that in Canada. That's what I I read some of that stuff and I was like, what? Yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, like, we just had a regular office, but also it's a, it's a cool and fun job, but that's pretty wild. When I was out recruiting people to join BuzzFeed Canada for the news side, I could offer competitive pay, I could offer full benefits, I could offer stock options and health. And in so many other cases, the only other jobs that were maybe available to them would have been contract gigs hmm. for yeah. a year or whatever. And so that alone oh, yeah. elevated us way above a lot of competing things. I mean, you did have a capybara pool party. <laughs> right? Like, we did. <laughs> but I don't think we paid for that. No, I mean, probably not. I imagine it was yeah. a promotional thing from Wild Long. I mean, I imagine every day was not capybara pool party day. Right. No, it wasn't. But this sort of thing kind of captured like— This also captures that moment in time when everybody was trying to do Facebook Lives. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Facebook announced like live is a big thing. They were incentivizing, meaning paying certain media organizations to do Facebook lives. Uh, BuzzFeed, not the news part, I think, but BuzzFeed Mm -hmm. proper was paid for that. Yeah. And so we were doing lives all the time. You and I also did. Do you remember the Facebook live? Yeah, you and I did together. You remember that one? I do. What was it? Tell the people. Uh, We had, well, did we apply makeup on each other or did someone else? Yes. Yes. Exactly right. Yes. We 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 applied makeup on each other while talking about toxic masculinity in a Facebook live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this, I mean, this is the crazy thing, yeah. and it was so much fun, is we published serious journalism. We published investigative pieces. We had pieces that were finalists for CAJ Awards. We had yeah. a silver medal winning in the investigative category for National Magazine Awards yeah. from our first year. Not even our first year. That yeah, was like the first months. eight months yeah. or yeah. six months. And also... The editor-in-chief was getting makeup put on him on a Facebook Live talking about toxic masculinity and would write a piece about a dead raccoon in the street. And so you could just indulge whatever you wanted, and we could go high and we could go low. And yes, some people absolutely didn't like that and mocked us for it and whatever, but we were all super prepared for that. We knew. I never understood what they were mocking. Like, were they were mocking our ability to just like get people to pay attention to something? Because that's what was confusing to me. Is like, Mm. is this newsworthy? I guess if you if you're sort of work in an environment where the only thing that is newsworthy is when like an institution is like, hey, we, we've done this thing. And you go, okay, I'll go report this out very seriously. But for us, I think we were just sort of in the business of 
gaining and keeping people's attention. And sometimes that involved being like, hey, uh, do you want to put makeup on each other and talk about masculinity for a minute? And it was great because people did stick with us for that. There's people who liked that. There's people who would read the serious stuff. And that that was, I think, one of the uh, defining sort of views of it is that the people who love the lists and quizzes would also read mm-hmm. a serious news article. Mm-hmm. We all contain multitudes. And at any given moment, we may want the news article. We may want the quiz. We may be comfortable going from one to the other. Or we may just want one or the other in that moment. But yeah. if you're offering all of that, then, yes, your chances of holding someone's attention and keeping them coming back and, yeah. and maybe informing them or delighting them is is th- there's the opportunity. What were some of the – like in terms of actually the more news news stories, what are some of the proudest things you published in that first year? I'm very proud of the piece that Emma Loop did about the trauma suffered by drone operators mm-hmm. in the Canadian military, which was uh, – was an incredible piece. Finalist for a CAJ award and really difficult to talk to people who've gone through that. And I'm proud of, you know, the investigative piece that we also published that was originally supposed to appear in the Toronto Star, mm-hmm. but was a huge media dust up where, you know, the Pulitzer Prize winning photographer left the Star because he wanted to tell this story about the discovery of the shipwreck. Yeah, that was Paul Watson's The Wreck of HMS Erebus, how a landmark discovery triggered a fight for Canada's history. You know, we worked on that story really hard. I got support from our uh, long form editors in the U.S. also mm. worked on it with me and ended up winning a, you know, a silver in the investigative category at National Magazine Awards during the election. And I'll tell you, I mean, I'm also proud of Lauren did a lot of great reporting um, and uh, visibility stuff around LGBTQ stories. Also, I thought Emma's piece of MPs who look like Pokemon <laughs> was extremely well executed. I'm not even joking. Like, it was perfect. It really looked yeah. like them. And I was also proud of it because, like, Emma, look at what she was doing. She was doing all these different types of things. And if people thought that was a ridiculous story, then they couldn't ignore the next story she wrote about something serious and political. And so, like, I was happy when we were able to hit those different notes and to bring something different. And so, yeah, there's a lot, certainly a lot I'm proud of that time. And some of it is the fun and ridiculous stuff. And some of it is the serious news. And I'm just happy we did both because that Mm. was the mission. And my recollection of the Ottawa coverage is that it really made politics accessible in a different way or political writing accessible in a different way that Mm -hmm. it's so – I mean, it's so rare. And then the fact that, yeah, just being able to use the BuzzFeed format to – tell an actual news story. But you mentioned that, like, politicians look at Pokemon. Like, somehow that, beyond just being fun, I don't know. I really find that that's the sort of thing that does draw people, maybe if not into politics, and certainly toward politics. You know, what What if you had no idea who your MP was, and by reading that article, you suddenly realized who your and local MP like was? Maybe better. that's a good thing from it, right? Yeah. But also, I think just in general, you know, this idea of treating... I, do yourself a favor and just like read literally any Global Mail politics story and try to think about the things that it assumes a reader knows, mm-hmm. right? Just try to think about the assumptions that it makes in the opening graph and by the time you get to the nut of that, how many things were assumed in terms of mm-hmm. that, the, how much base knowledge you have. What I'm really proud of, of in terms of our political coverage was that we mm-hmm. never assumed anything. And in doing so, it alienated, I think, a bunch of people who are like, well, I'm I'm already in the politics world. I don't need this explained to me. But it also conversely brought a bunch of people who are like, I'm kind of outside of this process. And I don't really speak the language that well. But, you know, when you do this Pokemon story, it allows me, it gives me an opening, gives me a Mm -hmm. window so that I can actually engage with political coverage of my elections that matter to me Mm -hmm. because I can actually, like, talk about it. I can follow you doing these stories. 
I think something that was really remarkable, and that kind of continued across all of the political mm-hmm. coverage that BuzzFeed did, whether in the UK or in the US for any election, is that it just never assumed this like deeply sophisticated sort of knowledge of politics because politics tends to be this, this kind of cumulative field mm-hmm. in terms of you covering it. So you're building a lot of stories. You're kind of like assuming a pretty base level of working knowledge. We never saw it as shameful to not assume that. Mm-hmm. I sort of really admire that about our approach. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Hey, weirdos, I know that you're out there on your Peruvian, you know, ayahuasca journey discovering that uh, all things are interconnected and the time is actually an ellipse, but eventually the drugs are going to wear off and you're going to have to come back to reality. And that's where you'll find Squarespace. It's a space for squares, squares like websites. Uh, You will need a website uh, to function in this shared reality that we inhabit together. And Squarespace is your all-in-one platform for building your brand and growing your business online. Stand out with a beautiful website, engage with your audience, sell anything, your products, the content you create, even your time, uh, guided meditation through various hallucinogenic experiences, whatever it is that you do, Squarespace is how you can make it real. I've used Squarespace. I've made websites with it. It is just as easy as I keep telling you that it is. You can build an online store. You can build out email campaigns. You can use beautifully designed custom templates and just personalize them. And then you get analytics and the best support you're going to find. Listen, head to squarespace.com slash CanadaLand for a free trial. When you are ready to launch, use offer code CanadaLand to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So at the end of the first year, we used, there was an anniversary, there was a party at the Burroughs building. And I think it was maybe the same day you both had presentations at Social Media Week Toronto. And Craig, yours was called A Year of Wins and Fails at BuzzFeed Canada. And this was the summary from your slide. Could you just read, read this out? And okay. To recap, social is not about pushing out links and or your message. Relatability is king. Mm. Be Canadian, but appreciate the nuances. Realize that the world has interest in Canada. And finally, understand your boundaries and find ways to experiment within them. How do you feel pretty about pretty good advice, man? It's like vague enough that I could like riff on it right now without not knowing what I was saying at the time. Relatability is relatability king, is king. Bro. I That's mean, still that, true. That That's is a core true. foundational uh, BuzzFeed thing. We yeah. did experience. Mm-hmm. Stories that got attention far outside Canada, uh, yeah. and and we could see the traffic coming from Canada versus coming from outside Canada, or what have you. And so, like that was definitely a thing where we felt we were showing that there was something to make the argument for being in Canada. Little did we know that you know would not last. Well, that's what I was wondering. I mean, because yeah. I mean, you were yeah you were doing things that were making undoubtedly, and you continue to make waves across the world with your coverage. But less and less it became about Canada. I think it was, so one of yes. your points there was realize the world's interest in Canada. And then it was like just a few weeks later that yeah. there was a just yeah, there was a decision at BuzzFeed to cease Canadian political coverage. And the two reporters in Ottawa, Emma and Paul, mm-hmm. um, they were reassigned or they were given opportunities. They were given to be the choice. They went yeah. to DC, yeah. Washington, DC that fall. So what um yeah, hmm. could you talk about that like that turning or that that where yeah. that decision came from or what you know about? Well, I think you know one of the things to talk about sort of why the decision came down to basically stop doing Canadian news was really in around my first hiring came in with some advantages where they let us hire news right away. We already had revenue and we thought these were things that would be bulwarks. We thought these would like be defensible to like keep a Canadian business in operation, but it ended up in some ways working against us because one 
already a top 10 site in Canada in our category. So even though we hired in the end, we had like 10 people, the traffic didn't really change that much. So it's not like you could be there. Like went from 10 to one, you know, because you're already pulling a fair bit of traffic. Already, you know, it's like to have a huge incremental difference to be bigger than like all of Bell Media's sites, you'd need to have a lot more than 10 people was the thing that I started to realize later in the year and that we were not going to be able to say, yes, we doubled traffic after the first year. And as much as I never received a single traffic goal or metric, of course, traffic mattered at BuzzFeed, right? And so the advantage of coming in and already having a big audience worked against us because we didn't get to say after a year and you hiring 10 people here, we doubled, we tripled your traffic. The other one was revenue, I think, which is we already had revenue and revenue absolutely grew in that first year. But I don't think the money people felt that it grew to the extent of like, oh, we needed to have lots of these people here in order for this money to grow. I think they felt we could have a much more marginal investment and we'd still rake in lots of Would Canadian. have kept growing whether we yeah. had seven BuzzFeed Canada people or two. Yes. Right? Yeah. And news is never a good argument for revenue, right? No. So news was like it, that was a decision by Ben to want to put news in. And I wouldn't have been the editor if he hadn't. So I'm, I'm grateful for it. And so some of our advantages, I think, worked against us. And then I also often, I mean, look, when you have an American company and they look at us up here and they say, well, they speak the same language. They have a lot of the same cultural references. Do we really need to be doing Canadian news? I think there was just like an American boss thing. Now, our saving grace, because before any of the changes became known publicly, I was in New York and I sat down with uh, Scott Lamb, who was the head of BuzzFeed International and Ben, the editor in chief. And they basically told me, like, we love the people you've hired. But we just don't think we can continue to invest in Canadian stuff like this. They're like, there just isn't the support for us to be having this many people doing only Canadian stuff. So we have to we have to change this in order for all of you to like keep your jobs and for us to keep you here. One of the comments in the culminating oral history from Joel Anderson, long former sports national reporter, was mm. everyone seemed to understand that the ride was going to be fun but short. Um, I guess at the end of 2016, you, you moved from being the editor of BuzzFeed Canada to becoming the first media editor of BuzzFeed in the wake of a couple, more than a couple, but particularly a couple hugely successful stories bookend, like one the week before Trump's election, one the week after, about fake news and the Right. The sense of like deliberately manufactured mm. false information um, for clicks and mm-hmm. what ha- what were like, you what were the next couple of years like as the the shift away from Canada happened? Didn't no one really knew if, how long they had to sort of figure out this new mix and would BuzzFeed actually keep them around? And so it was very nerve wracking and it went from a very high great first year or so together for some of us and, you know, or Mm -hmm. six or seven months to, yeah, what is going to happen? And to be honest with you, I disagree with Joel's sentiment because I didn't think it was going to be that short. Hmm. Um, You know, maybe I drank too much of the Kool-Aid. I thought I could foresee us being there for a while, even after BuzzFeed Canada had sort of the news ripped out of it for all intents and purposes. Yeah, my experience of that time is not particularly tenuous. Like it didn't, it Mm -hmm. kind of felt like the balance of, 20 to 30% of your time is spent mm-hmm. on Canada stuff. 70 to 80% of your time is spent doing something with like one of your US teams mm-hmm. really felt sustainable. Like it sort of felt like this could go on for like a little while. My duties on the curation team were like a little influx for a bit. At first, 
I was, you know, they were like, hey, we're going to get you to make videos. And I was like, I'm not very good at this, but okay, go off. But then that got changed a couple times over. I became the Twitter person. I became the Facebook person. Then I became the newsletter person. And the newsletter person, I did that for like three and a half that years. That was your of shit. Just, that you was my entire shit. You were the guy. That always felt sustainable for me to be able to like, we will do both. We're not going to do Canada the same way we were doing it mm. for that magical sort of year period. But there were still moments where um, Lauren Strapagale, Ishmael had, had left at this point. Mm. Um, but like whether it was Lauren or Sarah Aspler or Cat Angus, they would just jump on a Canada thing and be like, this is quick to do. We're not making every day like this, you know, yeah. but we were still kind of doing that. You could do a little, a little yeah. taste. It was a like little, a Canada snack. A little you know? treat. A little yeah, treat. It was like, you, yeah. And so that kind of felt pretty sustainable, but also in general, in terms of the idea of BuzzFeed feeling sustainable. For the most part, it did until it didn't, you know? Mm-hmm. It January. kind of went away really quickly. And, and look, change, yeah. one of the things about the experience of BuzzFeed is things change all the time. And that was one of the frustrations you could have is like, all right, everybody, we're doing Facebook Live. And then yeah. three months later, it'd be like, oh, okay, do this. Yeah. And so there was that going on, which I've worked at Stars before, so it wasn't that uncommon to me, but that's not that common in newsrooms, I suppose. So yeah. that was one of the things that at times, you know, you felt like you were careening in one direction or the next. And you did start to see at a certain point where things like they had a great podcast team and then they killed that team and they had great podcasts and they killed those. And you're like, why are you doing that? That's a really dumb decision. no fucking sense. And so, yeah. you, you know, it seemed like everything was going fine, but then you started to notice more and more. So you get to like 2017, 2018, 2019. Eventually we start to have our first layoffs. In January 2019. Yeah, yeah. and it starts to feel like, oh yeah, this is like what newsrooms are like. <laughs> you know? Mm. Yeah. But you still thought, okay, so we're smaller. We're maybe less ambitious, but we can still do a lot. And, you know, for me, it was the experience of when I first came in, we were the talent magnet. We were hiring people. We were getting amazing people. We were poaching. And then as things had definitely shifted by the time we get to, I think, 2018, but definitely into 2019, Mm -hmm. where BuzzFeed is getting poached. BuzzFeed news are, you know, talent is getting stripped away. And so it sort of feels, it feels like we've hit the the high point and mm-hmm. now it's like okay so where do we end up what is our new baseline and unfortunately it just kept declining and going down until recently they just killed the whole thing but can i just say like very early on i want to say maybe one of the all hands in 2015 or 2016 someone asked jonah peretti in one of these all hands it was like jonah where do we spend our philanthropy money and he made this joke he was like our largest philanthropic donation is news and it stuck with me. It was like, even then, I was like, this guy doesn't necessarily think of news as a thing that is a crucial or even like a sustainable part of this business in the sense that like everything else is making money. The newsroom is not making money. And you get to this period of time in the last couple of years where it's like, okay, I don't need news to make money. I just need it to sort of break even. Yeah. And it couldn't quite get there. Like that's, and that's, how, that's why we're here now. That was the original sin with, with news at BuzzFeed is that the theory from Jonah and from the most senior ad salespeople was – Hiring people to sell ads for news is a waste because we could add two people selling ads for news or we could add two more people selling ads for Tasty. We're going to get more money selling ads on Tasty than news. So literally we had no ads, number one, on the BuzzFeed site at all when we got there, which was turning away free money. Mm -hmm. They finally turned on banner ads. And then eventually they started saying, okay, let's do some business development on news. And that was years and years into there being a news division. And in the end, they could never catch up to the point of- It was like 2017 when they finally started doing that. You know, it was was much later. So that was just, 
just a, it was and Jonah has admitted that now when BuzzFeed News shut down that yeah I took too long to try and build a business out of news and that's true that was the thing that I think ultimately killed it because you know they also suffered from the high expectations they believed that the business they were building outside of news was going to be so big and was going to have big money coming directly from platforms that it didn't matter if news itself was making money and but, that, that was totally wrong but I should I should also say like it is not a reasonable proposal to go to an advertiser and say, would you like to spend this money and have it be spent on news or would you like to be, have it be spent on some of the buzz content that gets, you know, three, four times the number of eyeballs and it's just lighter content. You know what I mean? Well, but it, it can work if your demographics of news support the brand's mission, right? right? But you're 100% right that most brands, will be like, if they have in, a choice- Put in the fun thing. To be, yeah. be new, by, beside news or the light thing, they take the light thing. There's no question. And they took it every single time. <laughs> they took it every yes. single time. Like when we got, when we got like a week sponsored by somebody like in news, I was like- yeah. Who are these fucking people? Yeah, he probably got thrown in. It's like, <laughs> right? hey, I'll tell you what. Like, I'm going to have five pick, more dollars. Yeah, I'll you can have your news drink. too. Yeah. And here, here, you have a homepage takeover for a week. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I don't want that. No, no, you're yeah. taking it. Yeah. Please take our <laughs> Someone homepage. Someone take news. <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And so, I mean, when you left, like, I mean, you already left left for ProPublica in the spring of 2021. Was that a mm -hmm. difficult decision? Uh, it wasn't hard in the sense that I really wanted to stay anymore, but I don't mean it that negative. It's just like I had been there since, you know, six years. Mm -hmm. I had had a bunch of different roles. I had been a manager and I had only at that point spent uh, roughly a year just as a reporter without having people reporting to me because, you know, I hired Jane Linfinenko at the end of 2016 and we worked together closely as a team. Mm -hmm. We hired people like Lisa Hicks and others and a video team in the whole sort mm -hmm. of debunking team that we had. And then I had the last close to a year where I was simply just a reporter. Nobody reported to me. And I was able to sit and think for the first time what I wanted to do because I wasn't responsible for people. I could never – I could never felt I could leave when I had people reporting to me, especially in those precarious times where sort of Canada was shifting, if I had left, you know, would they have would they have laid off people because uh, I was gone? And so I just had an opportunity to think about it and and just felt like there weren't more roles for me or more for me to do at BuzzFeed. So I just went looking to find other places and ProPublica was really the only place I wanted to go and it, it worked out. And in retrospect, obviously, the team I was on at that time, the sort of tech slash business team at BuzzFeed News, it basically completely imploded in the coming months. You know, Jane left soon after, mm -hmm. Ryan Mack, my reporting partner on a lot of uh, Facebook mm -hmm. stuff, left soon after. And really, you know, the whole team almost sort of left and had a turnover. And so clearly it was it was time for, for a change for a lot of people then. Yeah, and a lot of people. I mean, I'm certainly in Toronto. I don't know how many people were going to the office then, but certainly a lot of people were leaving. Like, Correct. Lauren left that fall. Cat Angus left February of 2022. Mm -hmm. You stuck around till the end of last year, Ellen. My last day at BuzzFeed officially was January 15th, 2023. So actually, it was this calendar. It was oh like, wow! It was three months before the whole thing happened. Did it feel like, you know, I think we've all been into newsrooms that have have fewer people than they used to have, and you can sort of sense that emptiness. Was it anything like that? No, I mean, listen, I wanted to leave in 2020. My mm. plan was to leave in 2020 because I had to go, I was, I was going to go pursue a book leave. And before I could go on my book leave, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to come back. The newsletter hours are honestly a little bit exhausting to me because mm -hmm. I tended like tended to write them early in the morning. I just wanted to be like, okay, what else can I explore? And... Saryasin, who just the greatest human being, was like, fuck, you're leaving. You're not leaving. You know, we'll find something else that you want to do. What else do you want to do? And I was like, well, you know, 
I've always kind of been a little bit interested in writing long form. And she kind of shepherded my transition from mm-hmm. the curation team to the culture team. And so there I could do some more of the long form writing, some more of the reporting that I wanted to do, which was just the fucking delight of my life. And so mm-hmm. stuck around from 2020 until 2023 until this opportunity with the CBC came up. It just kind of made sense to leave now. When I was leaving, I didn't think that BuzzFeed News would die this quickly. I thought mm-hmm. it was probably nearing its end, right? Like Because last year when Carolina, who was my former boss, mm-hmm. became the editor-in-chief, the vibe and the mood was, okay, we have a year to become profitable as a newsroom. And if it doesn't happen within that year, then it's going to be like we, we're in real trouble. But it didn't last a year. No. It didn't last a year from that year warning. It sort of lasted about eight months, right? Eight yeah. or nine months. Because the, the stock price is in the toilet. They went public. They yeah. shouldn't have gone public and followed through with that. Stock price goes in the toilet. And then Jonah, who has, to his own detriment— kept news going longer than any of his investors or board members, I think, really wanted. At that point, he has no choice because he's a CEO of a public company that is now in danger of being delisted from the stock exchange. And it's a cost center. And even if BuzzFeed News was breaking even, it's still a way to reduce costs overall. And so I think he, at that point, he had no choice. He loved having news. He loved that it stirred up shit. Sure. But he also, you know, it was mismanaged. And he's admitted it was mismanaged. It was done in a way that was not sustainable. It was done in a way that hastened its decline by not actually treating it seriously like a business and not just some, oh, great little philanthropic thing that we do, you know? Yeah. So it's a business that won a fucking Pulitzer, man. Like, you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) take it, take it. With the seriousness that it deserves, mm-hmm. you know? One last comment from the oral history I want to quote was from Tom Warren, investigative reporter. Uh, he said, the experience of working here, while sometimes frustrating and often stressful, was a dream come true. Yeah. The rest of the news business looks insipid and gray in comparison. I'm not asking you to diss your current employers or anything, <laughs> but, like, what is it? what does it all look like looking back at what it – this bright red and yellow thing that this was? What do you – I've never had out? that much freedom – in a job to find out if a thing works or not. And sometimes I'm like, Craig, I have an insane idea. And you're like, all right, why not? Just go try it. Um, That ethos comes from not having anything to protect, right? Like when we call a legacy organization a legacy organization, what we're talking about is the risk to their name is too high for them to be like, you know what? Sure, take that risk, it doesn't matter. That's what a legacy is. Like, there's a real sense of like protectiveness around a name. There's a real protectiveness around a history. So you're like, we're not going to try shit. Mm-hmm. But there was, even to the very end, you know, I'm really talking about a eulogy here. I don't want to give a eulogy, but mm-hmm. even to the very end, there was still the sense of like, I don't know. I don't know if that'll work, but try it. Like, because mm-hmm. it's it's worth doing. I don't know if there's anything in that story, but let's go find out. And I think it's really easy to romanticize that freedom. I think it might also be worth noting, maybe that freedom doesn't continue to keep the lights on, Mm. you know, long term. But while you have it, it's a dream come true. I work with such wonderful people. But I'm also somebody who's old enough now that I've probably written for more news organizations that do not exist than ones that still do. Mm. Uh, I have been involved in a few media startups. And so to me, the thing that I've always experienced is like, sure, you, you go through things and you take them with you personally. But the thing that lasts, because BuzzFeed News isn't around and while BuzzFeed Canada is, it, it, it's what happens is the people. It's the people that we had. We had that team of 10. And so now everybody has sort of scattered to different places. 
But everything we got to do together and everything we learned, we get to bring to the new places that we go. And so that's the thing that's actually has lots of longevity. Like, sure, there's articles we all wrote that we're proud of and what have you. But the thing that has the longevity and that actually makes the most change is where the people go after they have this experience and what they bring to the new places. And that's the exciting thing that actually changes Canadian media. Yeah. I guess in terms of what's going to BuzzFeed was all this whole history of media collapsed into a decade. Do you think there has lessons for where everything else is heading? Well, look, I mean, the, some of the weird things about BuzzFeed that were kind of a contradiction is when I went there, I assumed that like everyone had said, oh, the homepage is dead. But then I got there and I looked at the traffic and it's like, no, actually the homepage is our, homepage top, is fine. our yeah. top place. People <laughs> still go to the homepage. Yeah. And then a few years into it, everybody at BuzzFeed realized, wow, we are doing things that not only aren't optimized for search traffic, like getting traffic from Google, but we're actually doing things that are actively harming and hurting our chance of getting this audience there. And so there was, I think, a blind uh, commitment that was harmful in the end to thinking, yes, everything is moving to social. And so that was a mantra. And it, there were a lot of mistakes built into that. And so I think hopefully one of the lessons is, you know, the diversification and the closer you can be to your audience, get your business built from multiple revenue streams and be as close to your audience as you possibly can. Get rid of the intermediary, whether it's Facebook or whatever, because you know Jonah believed that eventually Facebook and Google and others would pay BuzzFeed tons of money for its content. Yeah. Never happened. Yeah. And that was at the root of it and it was wrong. And so the media business today is going back, I think, hopefully to some fundamentals of realizing actually you need a relationship with your audience as close as possible. Do not let it be mediated by somebody else. Well, <laughs> Thank wow. you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank pal. you. This yeah. is so great. Thanks for I having really us. appreciate nice this. I'm sorry it's so hot in here. <laughs> That is your Canada Land. If you value this podcast, if you value anything we put out from this network, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis. You'll be keeping our work free and accessible for everybody. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to candleland.com slash join. We're still on Twitter at Candleland. Our website is candleland.com. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, filling in for Jesse Brown. And much as you can email him at jesse at candleland.com, you can reach me at jonathancandleland.com. And I will match his promise to at least read everything you sent. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson, with additional production on this episode by Nuras Rie and editing by Tristan Capicchione. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our theme music is by SoCalled, and syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Candleland ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus. In France, in the 13th century, 
a teenager ascends the throne. He seems calm, collected, and as it happens, drop-dead gorgeous. But looks can be deceiving, and no one is ready for the death, destruction, and chaos that lie ahead. Step inside the reign of one of the Middle Ages' most cold-blooded rulers on This Is History presents The Iron King. Available wherever you get your podcasts.